The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Great to have you along for the ride today. And I welcome you all as my happy warriors, you eager devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Now, why do I call you happy warriors? Well, because I see every one of you, regardless of your age or your condition, as either a beautiful and nubile woman or a handsome and virile man. No gender spectrum, no confusion. Just male happy warriors and female happy warriors. This is because our show focuses as much on your soul as on your bodies. And I suspect that almost every single listener has a young and vibrant soul. What is more, we're all happy warriors because to live productively... You have to fight every single day. You fight against the force of entropy, if nothing else. That strange force that God built into the universe that reduces gradually everything to a state of disorder and chaos without the input of energy that your life and my life revolves around providing. We all fight to maintain our possessions. We fight to build and maintain our family. We build, we fight in order to maintain our money. You fight in order to maintain your body and your business, your profession or your, your career. Life is a fight, and that's a good thing. Because to stop fighting, seeking, striving, well, that's to die. And I call you not just warriors, but happy warriors. Because to throw yourself into the fight for eight or ten hours a day, six days a week, well, that's one thing. But to do all that with a debonair smile on your face and a jaunty pace to your stride, to do all that while generating an irrepressible surge of happiness welling up in your soul, Well, that means you are spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism, and all the many destructive and evil social pathologies that it generates. When I reveal for you how the world really works, it is in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans in history who possess neither Judeo-Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity which would almost be welcome. Those hideous hermaphrodites and fanatical feminists running our media, education, and government bureaucracies, who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive 
wisdom of women. But oh, what damage they managed to inflict. Well, never fear. Here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, you know that I solemnly commit to help you transform timidity to triumph. Together, we will replace diffidence with determination. And we will win. As you all know, I greatly celebrated the win of President Donald Trump in November 2016. As a matter of fact, those who of you who've been together with me here on the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show for a little while, well, you know that I was eagerly advocating for the election of Donald Trump from early that year, early in 2016. And the reason for this was that I really believed then, and I believe now, that a continuation of the disastrous Obama years, which is precisely what Donald Trump's opponent would have given the United States of America and the world, had she won, well, I think all is well. Perhaps that is an overstatement. What is sure is that things are better by far than they would have been had the alternative transpired. That is not to say that uh, I have been without criticism for the president. That would be ridiculous. One of the areas, one of the few things that I have uh, critiqued vociferously in recent days, and I am recording this show soon after the um, uh, presentation of the 2019 State of the Union speech to Congress um, in February. And there is one phrase, there's one section of that speech that I need to talk about. And since we are in the period of Valentine's Day, uh, to which I ascribe not even a whit of any real significance, but since it is a date on the calendar, it is not surprising that the uh, issue on which I disagree strongly with the president uh, has to do with male-female relationships. Let me play for you, if I may, just one minute of his speech. And in order to, uh, to, to cherish uh, your time and to take the investment of time you make in the show seriously, I will tell you that uh, we have um, edited out a lot of the applause. Uh, the applause was long and sustained on many of the things that the president said. And uh, I've removed those so that uh, we can focus just on the substance. So please um, go ahead and give your attention for just a minute to uh, these remarks. And I suspect that as you hear them in focused isolation from the rest of an otherwise admirable speech, I felt, uh, you too will quickly recognize what it is that I'm about to address. As we work to defend our 
people's safety, we must also ensure our economic resurgence continues at a rapid pace. No one has benefited more from our thriving economy than women who have filled 58% of the newly created jobs last year. All Americans can be proud that we have more women in the workforce than ever before. Don't sit yet. You're going to like this. And exactly one century after Congress passed the constitutional amendment giving women the right to vote, we also have more women serving in Congress than at any time before. Got it? Yeah, right. I'm sure you picked up on it right away, that we are celebrating the huge increase in the number of women in the workplace. Oh, really? Let me explain what the problem with that is. First of all, I will tell you that uh, everybody comments, and the United States Department of Labor Statistics um, assures us of this, which is that since World War II, the number of women in the workforce has been going up. That is true. And what you can find, if you look at it carefully, the graph is rather fantastic. Um, during the uh, last years of World War II, the number of women in the workplace spikes upwards dramatically, and that momentum seems to continue. In 1945, 46, 47, and from 1948, it starts slowing, and uh, and then the growth is is mild. Sometimes dips down, and it, it shows a drop, and other times it goes up. But nothing very dramatic happens until <laughs> you guessed it. You know the magic date. And I've I've had a number of you write in. You know, on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, um, you can uh, you you can click on the contact us section and I get to see all of those and as many of you have discovered I respond to a great many of them as well but uh, and, uh, several people called in to say well uh, you know it was in 1962 it was 1963 at the end of 63 when President Kennedy was assassinated no it was uh, actually another date in 1960s when uh, uh, prayer was removed there was supreme right, look as you know I don't quibble over the date there is no way to assign a particular date to epochal changes in society. But uh, it was in the early 1960s that we find the increase starting to climb again in ways reminiscent of the World War II period. And then that picks up and, uh, and grows and grows with occasional uh, drops as well, but more or less keeps on going up from the 60s to the present time. And the president, as you just heard, regards this as a wonderful thing. Look, I don't. Um, I studied the uh, U.S. Department of Labor uh, figures very, very carefully. And, uh, you know, I saw a lot of things. Um, for instance, I saw that there are about 75 million women working in the workforce. And that is about, it's coming close to about half 
um, of, of all the people in the workforce. Um, as an aside, some of the things that were interesting were, again, not surprising, but uh, uh, there's, there are professions and activities that attract women. There are others that do not. Uh, 98% of speech therapists are women. What percentage of dental assistants? Well, if you visit a dentist regularly, then you know the answer to that. 93% of dental assistants are women. Uh, 82% of social workers, that's right, over 80% of social workers are women. How about engineers, uh, construction workers, uh, people involved in uh, heating, air conditioning, in, uh, trades? Less than 1% are women on those. Um, 74% of people in human resources management. Again, perfectly natural to me. That makes all the sense in the world. 74% of those. At any rate, okay. So, um, 75 million, and this is a reason to celebrate. Why exactly? Why is this a wonderful thing? Particularly since I think we can accept uh, without fear of contradiction that um, many of those women, if they could avoid working would I, since since when is this something to celebrate that that women should have the choice to work obviously but that's been true for a very long time already uh, but the idea that we should celebrate this incredible achievement that so many women are in the workforce i don't think it's anything to celebrate and i'll tell you why i think that i do know that the number of women who are like Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook, the woman who wrote the book Lean In, the women who, uh, who have very high-level, uh, successful, exciting, wonderful careers, that's not a lot of people. <laughs> um, but if you're a woman and you're a dental assistant, I bet that if there was some way you could spend your days differently than from poking around in people's mouths, you would. And I'm sure you heard those words of the president, and you shook your head and say, what is he thinking? Now, here's another thing we should know, and that is that there's a huge difference between married women and unmarried women, a huge difference. In other words, um, something we know and uh, we've got figures on this. I do not have figures from the United States, but I do have figures from European countries. A very large number of women who have careers, when they marry a man more successful than they, quit work. And this, by the way, this irritates the Dutch government. There are some really remarkable articles where the Dutch government spends valuable money that they've extracted from their hardworking Dutch taxpayers in order to study how to solve this problem. It's not a problem. The women are doing what they want to do and what their circumstances allow them to do. Anecdotally, just because I speak to a lot of people in this field, uh, I speak to a lot of uh, audiences. I speak to uh, to uh, I, mean, I, I speak to to people who are, are private clients in in my uh, coaching uh, business. Uh, I speak to a lot of people, and I've encountered many many women. I'll give you a case in point um, where uh, there was a a woman who made it to a high level brand manager for an international 
conglomerate that well yeah I'll, I'll tell you it was uh, it was um uh i think it was colgate palmolive if i'm not if that is the if that is the uh the 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 holding company at any rate she was a brand manager for one of the brands in a, an international company for the western united states or maybe for the whole united states bottom line is she she got pretty far up um the cab she was at a meeting uh, in a, at a west coast city she was heading back to the airport to head back to the east coast headquarters and um her her cab her taxi had an accident and um a good Samaritan stopped, saw the cab have an accident, got there and helped her out of the cab. And uh, she was a little shaken up, but not injured at all. And she really just needed to get to the airport. And he offered to drive her to the airport. The fact that she was a beautiful blue-eyed blonde did not hurt at all. Um, as it turned out, the guy who stopped for her was Jewish and when she disclosed that she too was Jewish, as you can imagine, the drive to the airport took, well, just a little longer than it absolutely needed to take. And when they got to the airport, he didn't drop her off at the terminal. He parked the car, carried her bags into the terminal, helped her check in, and talked with her as long as he could. And um, they got married. Long story short, they got married, and uh, they're a lovely couple with a beautiful family living in Los Angeles as we speak. However, here's the interesting part. Um, about six months into their marriage, she wanted to quit work. Uh, she was expecting, and she just realized that work had lost its meaning for her. She wanted to be focused on building a home for her husband. She wanted to be focused on building the social connections in the community for her husband, which if you're holding down a full-time, busy, high-level job, it's very difficult to do. And so she wanted to quit. There was one problem, and that is that um, the, uh, the business school she went to, the tuition was paid by this international conglomerate. And this is not an infrequent arrangement. She was obviously a talented girl. And uh, they paid for her business school in exchange for a certain number of years of commitment to work for them. And uh, the, uh, her husband was a coaching client of mine at the time. And, she, um, and he asked me what he should do. And uh, I said, I can't tell you what to do, but I'll tell you what I would do in your situation. Uh, I would buy her out. I would uh, pay the company the proportion that would be owing, and the contract was all very clear on this. In other words, you know, not slavery. She could get out of it. She'd have to repay the tuition uh, proportionate to how much time. Anyway, he ended up uh, paying her off, and he told me very soon after, a year or two later, he said to me, I want you to know there was one of the best large investments I've ever made in my life. I got my wife. And, um, and, and indeed, he did. This is not an uncommon story. I mean, some of the, the, the details and, and, and colorful aspects of it <laughs> are unique. But um, the, uh, the idea that women who can afford to quit work whenever they can, that is very standard. And I don't think, to me, there is, there is no reason to disparage that at all. 
but the president's remarks suggested that somehow she was betraying the team by leaving the workforce and being a wife and mom and community builder at home. Because let's not forget, women who are wives and mothers are not sitting around eating bonbons. They're taking care of various community organizations. They're looking after the neighborhood, the neighborhood school, whatever it is. They are doing crucially useful things. And what they're also doing is the invisible task of building their husband's connectivity in the community, almost invariably with positive business consequences. So I don't doubt that a large number of the 75 million working American women are working because they have to, and um, I understand, right? We, we all have to do what we have to do. I get it. Uh, but also, um, there are a number of them who are working because of the social pressure that suggests you are less of a person when you decide to be a wife, a mother, a community builder, and that is a real shame. And, and men, I just want to tell you, you single guys out there, I know a number of you have fallen into the trap of thinking that you are less of a man if you marry a woman who's not with a career. Guys, you could hardly be making a bigger mistake. To marry a woman whose prime, whose priority will be you and the family you're going to build together and your community, wow. That makes you a bigger man. Yes, a bigger man. A man willing to take the responsibility for his wife and his family. And it makes your wife a gem of a woman who is willing to give you the privilege of providing for the family. Look, let me tell you something. Every job in America, with very few exceptions that I can think of, is a two-person job. It really is. And there is a reason why, until it became illegal, successful companies like IBM in the day used to make sure that they hired married executives. And not only did they only hire married executives, male executives, they hired married male executives who had happy, had happy marriages. That's right. They actually checked into the condition of the marriage. On other shows in the past, I've told you how they've done that. But it's very, very worthwhile recognizing that it is an enormous asset. It's for, for your employer, for your business, for your career. I'm talking to men. If you have a wife who not only lets you focus on your career without having to worry about who's looking after your children, and you don't need to hear the horror stories and nightmare tales from daycare centers to know that when you know that your children are with your wife, <laughs> there's nothing to say, is there? It's pretty clear. And what's more, what do you think about the raising of the next generation in America? Do you think children do better with a mother who's raising them? Or do you think children do better with a babysitter who looks after them? Just think about it yourself. You don't need experts. You don't need studies. You don't need universities to tell you. You know the answer to that. Just ask yourself, what is better? It's, a, it's an easy one, is it not? So for single women... Working, I get it. That's fine. God bless them. No problem. 
uh, how about women who've raised their children and uh, and their husbands are at the uh, at a high point in their career? Those women want to go, good luck to you. Hey, it's a free country. Everybody should do exactly what they want to do. My job here is only to tell you how the world really works. And one thing that is clear is that based on the president's remarks that I played for you at the beginning um, and the ridiculously enthusiastic response, meaningless, absolutely meaningless. I mean, choice here, let everybody do what they want to do. But that kind of cheering can mean only one thing. It means that the president or his speech writers and all the people in Congress who stood up and cheered for about 40 seconds on that all believe that somehow it is superior for a woman to work outside of the house in the workforce than to be a wife and mother at home. They must believe that. Otherwise, they would have been cheering the idea of choosing. But no, they are cheering that women chose in increasing numbers to join the workforce. What's that all about? And I'm going to explain that. But first of all, what I want to do is uh, play... Uh, for you an interview with a man called Tom Ziegler, who's a dear friend. Uh, Tom and I have known each other for a while, but I've known, I knew his late father, Zig Ziegler, for many, many years. And Susan and I were very close with Zig and his wife. He used to call her the redhead. And uh, we were in one another's homes, and uh, we, we, we go back many, many years. Um, Zig Ziglar and his wife had a remarkable marriage, of which Tom uh, was one product. And uh, I talked to Tom. Tom has a new book out, uh, which is which is beautiful. Choose to win. It's a lovely book, and uh, I talked to him about it. I think you're going to find it interesting. And as you will quickly see, uh, it is not separate from the topic I am discussing around about this <laughs> Valentine's Day. Uh, February uh, 2019. So uh, enjoy Tom Ziegler. And after that, I'm going to explain to you why, why is it that the forces of radical socialism, more and more prevalent in public life in America, why the forces of secular fundamentalism rejoice at getting women out of the home? They rejoice at transforming women from wives and mothers and community builders to dental assistants <laughs> and engineers and uh, road workers. Have you ever noticed that on road, uh, road work when they have a, uh, a flagman and they've got one-way traffic and, it, you know, one side it says slow and the other side says stop and they've got a person holding the flag? Have you noticed that it's usually the woman... <laughs> That's a different topic, but um, but yes, that's how the world really works. So let's listen to uh, Tom Ziegler, and right after that, I will tell you why it is that the radical left really wants to end the role of women in in the role of wife and mother. Tom Ziegler, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. How are you today? Well, like I said a minute ago, I'm doing better than good, but I think that's genetically required. Absolutely is, by by anybody who, who carries <laughs> your last name. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's, that's for sure. Um, well, I'm very excited to have a chance to talk to you about your book, Choose to Win. 
Um, I, I have the sense that you did a lot of research on this book. <laughs> I think I did about 54 years worth of research. That's right. Yeah, it's the old so, question, right? How long did it take you to write it? Right, 54 years to research it and a few months to write. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean about that. Um, for, for the start, though, and and I, I can see you 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 explored this. Choose to win means to purposefully set out your life strategies in order to win. That means the fact that you had to write a book on that means that a lot of us simply don't do that, right? That's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed is, uh, well, Gallup did a study, and the study said that 70% of the workforce is disengaged, meaning simply they barely show up on time, they leave early, they're on social media all day, they don't really care. And so what is... I have a technical term. I, I call these people zombies. And so they're wandering through life. And so I ask people, you know, are you doing what you're doing by design? I mean, is this fulfilling your purpose? Are you maximizing the gifts and talents that God gave you? Or did you just happen into this because any job would do, any vocation would do? It's the same in our physical life. It's the same in our family life. It's the same in our spiritual life. Are we just letting things happen to us that determine our course, or do we have a clearly defined objective in mind and we're heading in a specific direction? And so the original title, which I loved, by the way, was called Live to Win. And we sent it off to the publisher, and Usually publishers, as you know, usually publishers get in the way of a good book. They don't necessarily help it. Uh, and they came back and they said, you know, we like Live to Win, but we love Choose to Win. And at that moment, I knew it was a home run because when you talk to people from all over the world, and we have, as you can imagine, we have Ziegler fans on every continent. Yeah. They, they grow up in different atmospheres. Uh, a lot of them are in countries that don't have the freedoms that we enjoy here. Uh, yes. A lot of them are in families that don't have resources. And so the idea that you were born or you can live is foreign to them. But the idea of choice is something we can all get our arms around. We have a choice. And the choices that we make determine our future and the lives that we can have, regardless of where we start. And so that's right. what Live to Win is about. It's about saying, today I choose to do something in some area of my life that's going to improve who I am and where I, and where I want to go. So um, uh, I, at risk of alienating you, I agree with the publishers. I prefer Choose to Win over Live to Win. I do, too. Um, it, I do, because it's, so, it's, it's such a purposeful action. Hey, choose. And that means that a whole lot of people do not choose to win. That's weird. Why would anybody not choose to win? And, and I ask you that. Why, why are there some people who fail to choose to win? I think Your there's two reasons. Is, yeah. yeah. I think there's two reasons. Some of them don't even know they can choose. They've never been taught that. 
and others have been sold a lie and they've bought it. Uh, I was speaking uh, at Youngstown, uh, Univ Youngstown State University. And you know how it is on university campuses. Um, and so the first time in history this question was answered correctly, I, I was talking about gratitude and how we can choose gratitude. And the question I asked is, what's the opposite of gratitude? And a student raised their hand and they said entitlement. <laughs> and I thought, I can't believe I just heard this from a young person on a college campus. This is amazing. And so I think the reason that people don't choose to win is because in a lot of cases, they've been sold entitlement and me winning isn't a function of what I do. Me winning is a genetic lottery or somebody else giving me something that allows me to win, but I can't choose it. You know, you, your subtitle is transform your life one simple choice at a time. And that's, that's really what it is. It's, um, uh, the, our lives are built not usually not by one humongous, cataclysmic, colossal event. It's usually by making a lot of good decisions at a lot of junctures along the way. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't know who said this quote, but the quote was, you cannot determine your future, but you can determine your habits and your habits will determine your future. Right. Yeah. And so, yep. in the, yeah. so in the case of this, what I, what I tell people is, and what I suggest is, why don't we choose the habits? And, and there's a, another little saying that I use is, a tree's fruitfulness depends on its rootfulness. And so what are the roots that we need to choose habits around that will produce the fruit that we want in our life. And I'll give you a simple one. Uh, I was, a number of years ago, I was having nightmares in the middle of the night, and I kept wondering, why am I having nightmares in the middle of the night? And then I realized I had the habit of falling asleep during the news on TV. Mm. Yeah, bad. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that explains it, sure. So that, that's an awful set of images to, to take with you into Betty Buys. That's right. And so I said, you know what? I can choose to now read something positive, listen to something positive, or simply turn everything off and spend time with my family as I prepare to sleep. Yes. And that choice gives me a better night's sleep. So it's, it's Well, this is a great book, uh, Choose to Win by Tom Ziegler. And I, I would say that without hesitation, <coughs> anybody who over the years – um, has been inspired by your dad, by your late dad, Zig Ziglar, anybody who, who found hope and a future uh, through his teachings needs to follow up with us because each and every one of us are confronted by decisions every single day. And, and, and something that, that your dad often does, and you allude to it, and, and I ask it on, on the show for years, I've been asking people, uh, how long would it take you to think of uh, one thing you could do that would dramatically damage your life? And the answer is about two seconds max. 
you know, I, I could so easily quickly think of many things. Now try and think of, you know, just one thing that would dramatically improve your life. And that's a lot harder because building is always harder than breaking. And, uh, and, and what, what you're doing in this book is well, you, you did it to me and, and, and you'll do it to every single reader. And that is you, you stimulate me. Each, each and every page made me think of a decision I could take a little bit differently, a new decision I could make uh, that would dramatically improve. So um, I love it. I absolutely love it. And um, and as you know, um, I I was privileged to enjoy a very special relationship with your late dad. And um, one thing I wanted to ask you is, do you know the barbershop story about him and me? I do not. Uh, well, let me tell it to you because it's it's sort of <laughs> it's it's part of our shared legacy <laughs> from Zig Ziglar. Um, but um, I I got a call. This was many years ago. I got a call out of the blue, um, and a, a rabbi introduces himself to me, never heard of him before, and he says, uh, I would really like to meet you. And I said, uh, why? May I ask, like, we've never, I've never heard of you. I, why do you want to meet me? And he said, well, I was in Dallas on business last week. And I'm sitting in the barbershop. Before I go to my meeting, I want to uh, tidy myself up a little bit. So I walk into a barbershop. I sit down, and uh, I'm, uh, you know, I've got a towel over me, and uh, and I'm, I'm getting a shave, and I'm getting a, uh, a haircut. And I hear quite clearly in a very strong southern accent, I hear the guy in the next chair talking to the barber about his rabbi. And he told the barber, you know, his rabbi said this and his rabbi said that. Well, um, the uh, the rabbi talking to me on the phone says to me, he says, boy, he says, I'm a stranger in Dallas. I've just arrived and I luck out to get into a barber shop right next to the chair of another Jew. So right after he's finished with the haircut, he walks over to the next chair and uh, taps your father on the shoulder. <laughs> and says, uh, hi, I'm Rabbi so-and-so, you, you must be Jewish, are you from these parts? I'm a stranger. And your father said, uh, well, we're not strangers, we, we're friends already, uh, I'm not Jewish, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled, I heard you talking about your rabbi. And he said, yeah, that's, that's my rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin is my rabbi. Well, this guy was totally blown away. He had absolutely, he couldn't even come. So he spoke to your dad for quite a, a, a little while, and they, I think they even went and had coffee together or something. But uh, he called and he said, I, I want to meet uh, a rabbi who has a friend like Zig Ziglar. And so uh, this rabbi and I became uh, close friends, and, and in fact, we ended up uh, doing some collaborations together, uh, all as a result of hearing your dad talk about me in the barbershop. Wow. Um, so yeah, that 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 is something. But so but let me ask you this. I mean, um, uh, what what I I have my own thought on this. But what would Zig Ziglar say if he sat down this afternoon and picked up this book and looked at it? Oh. Wow. 
He picks up Choose to Win. He sees Tom Ziegler as the author. What does he say? He, he probably, with a big grin, says, it's about time. <laughs> yes, he might. <laughs> uh, I, I think he'd be incredibly proud and incredibly thrilled. And I think I, he'd, he'd, he'd agree with absolutely everything in Choose to Win. Um, question I, I'm going to ask you, it's a question that I've been asked many times, because you and I share... Uh, many things, but one of the the conspicuous things we do share is that uh, we both grew up with an, a, an adulated father, a father that thousands of people everywhere looked up to and respected and admired and loved. Uh, my father was a distinguished rabbi and, and well-known, and your dad was Zig Ziglar. So here we are, you know, as kids growing up with, with this kind of father. Um, did you go through any tough times as, as I did? I mean, as a young kid, um, when I thought, yeah, it's all very nice that all these people um, love my dad, and but, but, you know, like, when, when do I get to have a little bit of that that they all experience with him? So I'm, uh -huh. I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm asking, like, what, what might have been some of the challenging areas, if there were any? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll point to one specific area, um, and you might relate to this. Uh, I, you know, I came out of college and started working at the company, but I had no desire to be a speaker. I was in sales, and then I became went into management, and then the, the CEO and president 25 years ago. And I was the behind the scenes guy. I mean, I was the operations guy who put the best in whoever graced the stage. You know, I, I helped him get there, right? Yeah, uh, right. And then everybody said, Tom, you should go and start speaking. In other words, not only having the name, but doing the same thing. And I had a lot of internal uh, consternation, uh, I don't know what you would call it, just indecision or, uh, you know, I would get very nervous. Uh, I would, I would, no matter how much I prepared, I would wonder if I did enough. And I had to come home after I'd been doing this for about a year and really, I call it sitting myself in the corner and having a talk with me. And I said, why do I feel this way? And I realized that the pressure I was putting on myself was I was telling myself that people wanted me to be like my dad on stage. Oh, and then I realized. This so this, you're sending shivers down my spine. And then I realized, wait a second, that's not what people expect of me they expect me to have the same principles and values, but they expect me to use the gifts that God gave me that are mine, not his. And that took the pressure off. And growing up, then I remember dad had never put that pressure on me either. He had always told myself and my sisters the same thing. He'd always said, 
whatever you decide to do, I'll support you. Just do it with 100% integrity and 100% effort. And so as you know, as a speaker presenter, uh, you cannot put on a mask. You cannot try to be something you're not and have any life, right? Because people either see through it right away or you're miserable. And Absolutely. so that's what and yeah, you, even if you can fool one person, you can't fool a hundred people in an audience. So that's when I said, you know what? Uh, one of my friends calls me an intellectual engineer, and I got all big headed and I googled it, and there's an acronym for intellectual engineer, and it's N E R D. I'm a I'm a nerd, uh, and so my humor is dry and different, and I don't <laughs> run around. I don't run around the stage. Uh, I don't have the, the, the charismatic impact that, you know, that dad was gifted with. No, uh, yeah, nobody else, nobody has it. When he, when he bounced across the stage and would start pumping that pump handle, you know, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I've, seen it, I've seen him do it many times. And I just, I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. I couldn't. <laughs> right. And so... So in the in the uh, in the New Testament, there's a parable about the master who gave each of his servants uh, talents, and when he came back, he he did an audit. You know, he wanted to know what they did with the talents, but he never he never said, "What did you do with the talents that I gave the other person?" He never said that. He only wanted to know what did you do with the talents that I gave you. And, and so that was kind of the message that hit home for me is, is my, my feeling of not ever being able to measure up or when is it going to be mine or are people yeah. going to be happy with me? It wasn't based on what God had given dad. It, was, it had to be based on what I did with what he's given me. And yeah, so you, that's you, and you've done it very well. By the way, you're, you know, you might think of your humor as, as, as dry and so on, but, uh, but the book comes across um, with passion pouring out of every page. You, you, you do know that. It, it's really uh, rather remarkable. The book, of course, well, Choose to Win, that I'm recommending. Um, the, um, the, the, the second section of the book is where you, you look at um, seven different areas in which we can all make choices and then you walk us through making the right choice and the areas just for the benefit of the listeners <clears throat> and i hope you'll all soon have your own copy so you can look at it inside but the areas are mental spiritual physical family financial personal and career um, looking at uh, family and financial for the moment i mean obviously those are are the really critical those basically those seven cover everything and anybody who's who's making good development progress in all of those seven areas has every reason to be um, happy and grateful for his life but um, but what I'm I was curious mostly about the family and financial and if you don't mind um, and those two chapters are full of substance, but I'm asking behind the scenes, um, what did you learn? What did you walk away with from the dynamics of the marriage of Zig and the redhead, your late father and your late mother? 
from the outside, from Susan and my perspective and the times we've spent together with them, uh, it seemed like a remarkable marriage and a remarkable relationship. Um, to How can I put that? Let me ask you directly this. Um, she subsumed herself in your dad's career as far as, as, far as we could tell. Um, and we believe that that had an enormous amount to do with his success. But how would things have worked out if she would have um, said, you know, we're married, but that's his career, and I'm building my own career as whatever it is? And, mm-hmm. and relate that to your two chapters of, um, of, of career and family. Well, first off, um, Dad said this, and I believe it. You know, he called Mom the redhead. And he said, you never would have heard of Zig Ziglar if it hadn't been for the redhead. And what he meant by that is in the good times and especially the tough times, she believed in him 100%. And there was a lot of tough times. I mean, they moved. Oh, we know. Yeah, he he would speak about them. Yeah. Absolutely. In 13 years, they moved 10 different times. I think he was in 15 different deals. And he was he was so talented that he was always being recruited to the next home run. And it wasn't until some wisdom entered his life later on that he realized, wait a second, I've got a plant for a little while. But mom never doubted him, never uh, questioned him but was was there supporting him, creating the foundation for him to launch from. And so dad's uh, ultimate gift to mom was he made her his number one account. Meaning, I mean, he said, G.K. Chesterton said, um, before you pull up a fence post, know why it's there in the first place. And so dad put boundaries in his life that he never crossed. And one of those was he would never be alone with another woman, whether it was in an office or in a car or anything, because as you can imagine, he traveled all the time and people were always willing to pick him up. And boy, did people people think he was old fashioned. And so it wasn't just – mom saying, hey, I'm going to support you with everything, and you go out and do it. It was dad saying, I'm going to honor this relationship with everything I have uh, as well. So there was there was never, that's you and this is me, it was always ours. Um, there were times when mom volunteered and did other things, and that gave dad great joy. And so I, I think in the context of their relationship, she could have done something else and still been the supportive person that she was. And it wouldn't have changed dad. In fact, uh, I know that inside uh, he traveled a great deal. And when she was working at the company, I think it gave him comfort to know that she had something to do uh, to keep her occupied and busy because his schedule was so, for 20 plus years, it was so one plane after the next that with, and kids at home, it was hard for her to be there uh, with him. So the, the 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 family, I think because of the way their commitments were in priority, I don't think there would have been a difference in the in the family, the the, the financial. Now if they're obviously if their priority to each other had had been subverted where career came before the other, 
uh, that would be a whole different story, right? Because then you start removing fence posts and making exceptions and people are people. And right. as, as, as good as our intentions are, um, you know, I love the, I love the illustration of the, the uh, very wealthy older woman trying to hire a chauffeur. And, and as, as they came in, she said, how comfortable are you driving next to a cliff? And to prove their, their driving ability, I might have heard this story from you. Who knows, Rabbi? <laughs> no, no, this one isn't one of mine. Okay. Uh, they would say, oh, yeah, I've I'm, I'm been to driving schools. I've driven royalty. I've driven, uh, you know, government officials. I have no problem driving next to a cliff or any other danger. And one man came in, and she asked him the same question. Why, you know, would you feel comfortable driving next to a cliff? And he said, absolutely not. Why would I ever put you close to danger? And that's the one she hired. Yes. And I think in our marriage, it's the same thing. We, we make these decisions of why would we ever put the most valuable thing in our earthly relationships at risk when we have choices? And so I grew up under that choice. Uh, in the financial side, I can only speculate what would happen if they had been divided on what was the priority. I, I, don't, I don't. I think it would have been a small percentage of what it was. Yeah, um, yeah I'm sure. A small percentage. Yeah, I, I agree I, with that. And, and why is that? Because I've, I've, through the years, obviously we attract the top talent in the world. Through the years, I've seen talent on the level of a Zig Ziglar from a pure stage presence. But there's no staying power because they sabotage their own future by the decisions right. they make. Tom, your, your book, Choose to Win, um, is one of those rare books that uh, really, if not every page, every few pages, uh, you, you want to highlight it or you want to do what I do, which is pull out one of my three by five cards and write down an action item because uh, it has so many inspiring moments that can become your choices. So, you know, for instance, I mean, two that, that, that struck me in the family section is uh, every day write a note or send a text to each of your children that tells them you're thinking of them, love them, and are proud of them. Do this. It doesn't end there. You then say do this every day for 66 days until it becomes a habit. Yeah, that's very cool. And it's something yeah. that, that many, many people are going to read and say, hey, yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and some people are actually going to say, okay, I'm going to choose. This is a way I'm going to choose to win in the family arena. And then you talk about prioritizing and setting aside uh, time on a regular basis for intentional family discussions on a topic that will still matter 30 years from now. What a great way of phrasing it. What are some of the tips? What are some of the uh, pieces of inspiration and advice that you're most proud of? That when you when you wrote the book and you finally finished, you said, you know what, I did a pretty good job. Maybe not everything I wanted it to be because books never are, but it's a pretty good job, and I'm particularly excited that I managed to express this particular choice area. Yes. Well, there's a, there's a couple of them. And in fact, uh, in, in this area, you had an influence. Um, Thank you. And 
I'll, I'll just tell the story. I've shared it with you before, but when mom and dad were moving from their house of over 25 years into the uh, retirement community, it, yep, was my job, it was my job to go through dad's library, which had about mm. 3,000 3, books in it. And I had to pick which ones are we keeping and which ones are we donating and uh, which ones are we going to go try to get a few nickels at the half-price bookstore for. Um, and so I decided to flip through them, and we ended up keeping the ones where he'd underlined. And I saw this one underlining, and it hit me. That's where he got the idea, where he merged a concept that he had with the concept from an author. And it became part of his presentation. And I literally thought, this is like finding buried treasure. <laughs> and I closed the book, and it was called Buried Treasure. And it, it's obviously your book. But to wow. see my dad thinking, his notes, the underlining right there, it was just, uh, it was a, it was a, one of those milestones in my life. And so, so here's a family tip that I tell people. Um, nobody, nobody's going to save their cell phone. You know, we make notes in our cell phone and we're, you know, those are not going to go in the family archive. When you, when you find a book that changes you or has wisdom in it, and maybe you're even listening to it on Audible, which is great. But if you say, that book really hits me, this is what I encourage you to do. Buy a hard copy of that book, read it, underline it, and make notes in it with your children's, your spouse, friends, family members' names in it. So I've written a number of times. My daughter's uh, name is Alexandra. So I've, I've made notes in a number of books with her name in it. Alexandra, this reminds me of you. Alexandra, this example, you know, is a great one to follow. Because someday, you know, if the Lord's willing, she'll be cleaning out my library. Right? That's right. the treasure. Right. And so it's intentional, right? It's a choice. And so I talk a lot about leaving a legacy by design. And here's the funny thing is, um, gosh, we all read books anyway. A lot of us mark in books anyway. How much more time does it take to do that? Uh, no time at all. Uh, I was, we had a gentleman on our podcast, and he said this. He said, I had two grandfathers. One of them left me everything, and one of them left me nothing. Because you're drawn in, right? What a great line. Yeah. And, so he explained that when he was a boy, they moved away from his hometown, so he never had a relationship with either grandfather. He goes to the funeral of the first grandfather, and he's amongst strangers. He doesn't know anything about his grandfather. Other, you know, he, he just knows that the memories of his grandfather are trapped in the people sitting in the pews. The next funeral he goes to is his other grandfather, which he didn't have a relationship with either. But this but this grandfather kept a one-sentence journal for 50 years, and he gave it to all of his grandkids. 
every day for 50 years, he wrote one sentence of what was going on in his life, what was important, the decisions, the hard spots in the road. I mean, just, and so last year, I wrote a one sentence journal to my daughter every day. She had no idea. It's the best Christmas gift I've ever given. That's how wonderful that you have a daughter that really appreciates that. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrific. Well, folks, the, the book is Choose to Win. And the author is my dear friend, Tom Ziegler. And if you would give up 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day of TV watching or watching YouTube or whatever else you have found a way of wasting time on popular entertainment, and you gave that time over to carefully reading Choose to Win, it will change your life. Absolutely. I don't think there's any question about it. And um, I, uh, I hope that hearing about it on the show today will stimulate you to choose to win. Tom, thank you very much indeed for spending some time with us. It's always a pleasure being with you. And I hope we can get together when I'm next in Dallas. Yes, absolutely. That will be a joy. Thank you very much indeed. And, and with great appreciation for everything you do to not only keep the Ziegler legacy alive, but uh, to create your own legacy by bringing so many people the roadmap to achievement and success and to happiness. It's, it's great, great work you do. I, I would call it holy work, and I appreciate okay. it. Thank you so much. Tom, we'll be in touch. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks God, so bless. God bless. God bless you. Well, there you go. We're... Um, uh, we're back again. I hope you enjoyed listening to me talking with Tom Ziegler, uh, which I did yesterday. And uh, and uh, take a look at his book, Choose to Win. Um, the, the Ziegler family and the Ziegler legacy is, is really quite remarkable. And uh, Tom has been a dear, dear friend whose uh, relationship with us, Susan and I, cherish. Uh, why does the left rejoice in getting women out of the home? Why do they look down with such disdain and such contempt on women enjoying and fulfilling themselves in their roles as people most responsible for the next generation? Wives, mothers, community builders. And yes, the role of community builder is very real. I will tell you this, all you've got to think about is in if you're married, if you're in a good marriage, and you ask yourself, who remembers family birthdays? Who sends out uh, the cards for New Year's or for uh, Christmas or holidays or whatever it is? Who is it who makes sure you remain connected? You would tell the truth and tell me, were it not for your wife, outside of work, you would be a hermit. So, yes... Every job in America is a two-person job, a guy in the workplace and a woman making it all hold together at home. Now, you might say to me, and you'd be correct, hey, Rabbi Lappin, 
Are you living in the 1920s? Are you living in the 1700s? Uh, it's, it's not like that in the real world anymore. Okay, I get all that. I, I have eyes in my head. I know what's going on. But I feel that uh, my job is like the, uh, the role of the professor of mathematics and applied mathematics in the engineering school, you know. Um, I know that in the real world out there, uh, there is ice and snow that damages roads and bridges. I know there's salt air that corrodes steel. I know that there's friction. I know there are all kinds of realities in the world which we have to live with and have to deal with. But my job is to teach you the unchangeable principles. And your job is to then apply those within the constraints, within the realities, within the challenges of your own life. And so, yes, I understand, of course, but that doesn't mean I can't paint for you a picture of how it would really all work. Can it work this way? I understand. Maybe not. Uh, for very few people in unique circumstances, perhaps. But yes, uh, for the guy to be at work and his wife to take care of, of, of everything, to, to, to fill him with an enthusiasm. Don't forget, when your wife surrenders to you, when she gives herself to you, that makes you a hugely more effective man. Don't tell me you do not walk taller for the next little while because you do. It is the one time in your life where you are able to overcome and conquer in a very good sense. That very special relationship of a woman who is willing to allow you the privilege of providing for her. Look, I understand not everybody doesn't work for everybody, can't work for everybody, but uh, at least in an ideal sense, know how the world really works. And what's going on, you have to remember, is that the hatred of the left is for anything that is biblical. Uh, primary and basic among it is the idea of marriage and family. And this is what lies at the root of secular fundamentalism's intense and virulent hostility for marriage and family. And uh, they hate the idea of the benefits that accrue from marriage. Their goal is to make government the replacement for marriage. Their goal is that, hey, nobody should feel a need to get married. Hey, women, we'll take care of you. You don't need a man in your life. Now, look, any real woman in touch with reality who doesn't think she needs a man is frankly as foolish as a man who thinks he doesn't need a woman. You see, any woman who doesn't realize that she does need protection. Now you think to yourself, well, I can dial 911 as well as anybody else. Well, good luck when you in your house one night hear somebody downstairs or you hear movement in the house and you've got a choice. Would you, uh, would you rather have a cell phone with which you can dial 911 or would you rather have 
a big, strong male in bed next to you, your husband, who feels duty-bound. He feels a sense of pride and dignity in defending you and protecting you. Would you rather have a husband who you know would give his life to take care of you and your children, or would you rather have a cell phone with 911? Now, I know some of you are saying, well, it could be both. All right, uh, please understand that I am laying out a scenario for you. And uh, if you had to choose government resources or a husband, does anybody really have to sit and ponder that one? I think not. At least I hope not. The idea um, of government is indeed to suggest to women that they don't need a husband. It's to make marriage dispensable. And indeed, the government has not only made marriage dispensable, but uh, they've succeeded in generating an entire class of women who have done that indeed. Uh, I don't think you need me. You can check government statistics yourself if you don't trust me on this by now. But uh, by far and away, the overwhelming majority of women, when I say overwhelming majority, I don't have the exact number, but it's well over 75% uh, of women on welfare are single. Well over 70, it's over 80% are single. Right? There's a reason for that. This is part of of the secular fundamentalism's governmental religion's desire to replace marriage. Now, look, they also love the idea of having uh, a man and a woman working instead of married and living on one income because there's more to tax. They, they obviously prefer that. There's, there's no question about it because the left thrives on the notion of government spending. You know, I heard uh, President Reagan uh, and, um, you know, I have a YouTube channel, right, Rabbi Daniel Lappin on YouTube. So uh, I respond. Sometimes people comment on that channel on the various shows like this one. This one you could be listening. Maybe you are listening on YouTube right now. But wherever you're listening doesn't matter. But if you do listen on YouTube and you write a comment, I'll usually respond to that whenever I have a chance. And uh, YouTube sometimes pops other things up at me. And I must confess that from every now and then, I embarrassedly surrender, I embarrassedly um, indulge, and what I saw was a, a five-minute interview between President, uh, then Governor Ronald Reagan and Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, 1975, and, uh, and this was uh, just after he had um, left the governorship of California, and uh, Johnny Carson is hilarious, and he said, what does it feel like to be unemployed, and Reagan was superb humorous, substantive. I, I wish there was a uh, late-night television show today on which things were discussed on this kind of level. But one of the things President Reagan said is that there should be a, uh, a statement, a policy, a bill that politicians agree to and commit to that no American should be taxed above a certain figure, and we should determine what that figure is. Well, of course, you'll never get politicians to agree to that because deep down in their hearts, particularly Democrat politicians, by the way, the party is the Democrat Party, not the Democratic Party, right? They have nothing to do with democracy or democratic principles. They are known as the Democrat Party. A lot of people get that wrong. I just thought you should know that. But uh, particularly Democrat Party politicians would never agree to any figure because deep in their hearts, they believe that figure should be a hundred percent. Ultimately, that's the dream of socialism in the final analysis. So uh, all of these things lie at the heart of why it is that secular fundamentalism, the official religion of the government of the United States, 
hates marriage, hates family, and wants to do everything possible to take women into the workforce. They want more women who are in the workforce. They'd rather have women who are recipients of welfare than they would have independent women, part of a family, wives, mothers, and community builders. It's sad, it's tragic, and unfortunately, what I've told you is the unvarnished truth. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, you will find there uh, two sets I want to direct you to. Uh, One of them is the income abundance set, which is a lot of material on finance and uh, wealth building. And uh, the other one is about love and romance. And it is every bit as important, particularly uh, in the context of everything we've been discussing today. So head over to www.rabbidaniellappin.com. You can actually also go to youneedarabbi.com to get the same result. And uh, you can also make sure you receive the weekly thought tools. If you're on our subscription list, you will also get a reminder that the newest show has been posted, and you can download it and listen to it. And uh, you can also write to Susan and me right there. You can also read uh, the latest columns of Ask the Rabbi. The most recent one uh, we found very, very fascinating. I hope you do, too. Uh, the uh, thought tools, uh, Susan's musings, and you can read the fascinating comments we get from people. All of this going on at the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. So head over there and be part of my community, my congregation, as it were. Okay, well, that's it for this week. I thank you so much for being part of the show. As always, I deeply appreciate everything you do to help promote the show and spread the show to new listeners. Very much appreciated, and I wish you good times in the week ahead, good times with your faith, your family, your finances, and your friends. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.